Good morning, church. My name is Jason Windsor. I'm one of the student ambassadors. I want to welcome you guys that are joining us online and you guys in the Fredericksburg campus. In addition to being a student pastor, my wife and I are the proud owners of five children, ranging from ages 17 down to six. And I just say that so that you know I am a student pastor and I am a father of five. And at any given time in my house, there can be between seven and 13 children. Your kids are not going to bother me this morning. They're not going to be, and, and look, Jesus says several places in scripture, let the little ones come to me, right? And that's the language of our Bible is family, brothers and sisters. We're not gonna make anyone's week any harder than it already has been. So, mama, dad, if your kids are being a little rowdy, remember where I usually speak up in the middle and high school rooms, kids will shout questions at me in the middle of my messages and they don't have anything to do with what I'm talking about. <laughs> They'll just shout out a question. And if your kid is bothering somebody around you and they shoot you that little judgmental look, just shoot it back because they're supposed to be paying attention to me and not your kid anyway. So you can just shoot it back to them and be like, hey, why aren't you paying attention to Jay? Yeah, don't judge me. So there you go. We get that out of the way. Uh, immediately following the service, we will have the prayer team up here so we can all ask repentance for our judgmental looks today. Uh, but in reality, they'll be up here so that if you want to know where you fit in here, if you need prayer, if you want to share your story, whatever reason you need to connect and find out where you fit into this Mount family, these men and women are up here to pray with you and get to know you because sometimes in our big Mount family, it's very easy to be anonymous and we have no desire that if you desire to be known, that you be made to be anonymous. And I am a student pastor, so I am gonna take a couple minutes to remind you that if you are the proud owner of a middle or high school student, our student groups launch this week. We have groups on Monday night, we have groups on Tuesday night, we have groups on Thursday night, and I will go right to that circular desk we call guest services immediately following the service and answer any questions that you may have about those. So with all of that said, before we get into scripture, we're gonna primarily come from 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and Luke chapter 15, if you guys follow along. But while you guys find those, we're going to pray and ask him to bless our time together today. Heavenly Father, we thank you for being a great God. We thank you that you give us scriptures and that you give us family to lean on. Now, through the reading of your scriptures and the wisdom of your Holy Spirit, transform our hearts and our minds so that we think like you and we value what you value so that we can be made to be more like you. We ask this in the power of your Holy Spirit in your son's name, amen. So I grew up in a family where uh, church wasn't optional. Uh, mom took us to church pretty much from the time that I can remember, and I did the middle school camps, and I did the high school camps, and, and I did the things that kids do as they grow up in church, uh, but I was not a Christian. I was unsure on where I stood about Jesus. If he was who he said he is, if, if he was the son of God, or if he was just a man that walked. And so I was what I like to call Christ adjacent. I was in church and I knew the gospel, but the only consistent thing about my life was inconsistency. I would go to a camp and I'd be like, yes, this is true. Jesus, I give you my whole life. I'm gonna follow you every day forever. And then three weeks later, I'd be 
how can we be sure this is true? There's so many things that say they've cornered the market on truth. How can we be sure that this one statement is a true statement? So for about two and a half decades, I waffled back and forth trying to figure out who Jesus was, trying to figure out what it meant to me. And if you were a Christian and you came up to me, I would play devil's advocate and I would take the converse. But then if you were not a Christian and you came up to me, I would devil advocate that. I would t- Just searching, trying to find some measure of truth in what I thought was just a sea of ambiguity. And I was 30 years old when I finally agreed that Jesus is who he says he is. And by that time, I had probably heard the gospel 100,000 times. I'd seen it in skits. I'd heard it with very emotional music played behind it. I'd seen pastors use props like shovels and wallets and I I had seen an uncountable versions of the gospel. And I I got the basics. I understood that I had done wrong. That was a very provable statement. I had, some people have a problem like, well, have I really done wrong? I I didn't have that problem. I was very sure from a very young age that I had done wrong. I was very sure that because I'd done wrong, I was correctly judged by a perfect God. And Jesus, unwilling that I would be separated from him for eternity, came, allowed himself to be nailed to a cross, paid the death that I should have paid, was buried and rose again so that I could be with him after I died. And that's the part that I focused on almost exclusively, right? Because eternity is a really long time. So I wanted to make sure I got that right. So, But in my focusing on being with God after death, upon the moment that I agreed that Jesus is who he says he is, I had a burning question, like, what happens now? Like, I still have years before I go to be with Jesus. How does the gospel of Jesus Christ affect my now? And this was interesting to me. So in reading through scriptures, I I come to find out there's an entire aspect of the gospel that I had neglected by focusing on what happens after I die, that now I receive the Holy Spirit. Scripture is clear on that, that once you agree that Jesus is who he says he is, God sends his spirit to live in you, and you and I receive the Holy Spirit. Now, this is a statement that we are not going to unpack today because it would take all of our time together, and we're going somewhere else. But we did unpack that statement in a sermon on August 29th called Am I Qualified? And you can hit that on the YouTube channel, The Mount Church, if you desire for a full treatment of what that means. But we're gonna look at one aspect of what that means today, that when we receive the Holy Spirit, we are being transformed. We are a new creation. The word we call people who follow Jesus Christ is Christians. And literally, that word means little anointed ones. Who was the anointed one? Jesus Christ. So literally, to be a Christian, to call yourself a Christian, means to be a little Christ. Because when we receive the Holy Spirit, we are being made more and more a reflection of him. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, when he writes, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit is, there is freedom. And we are being transformed daily in his image to his glory. This is from the Lord because the Lord is spirit. When we talk about this life 
that we take on as Christians between the time that we believe the gospel and the time that we die, we focus on do. I need to do these things. I need to not do these things. Stealing cars is bad. Telling the truth is good. Like we focus on all these do's, but the scripture focuses on who we are. Just because I put on a lab coat does not mean I am qualified to perform open heart surgery. We need to focus on who we are, who the gospel transforms us to be, the new creation that we become, and then the doing comes after that. We realize upon examinations that Christians and non-Christians can do almost everything Non-Christians can give to charities. Non-Christians can love their spouses. Non-Christians can be good people. Non-Christians can be charitable and generous. Both Christians and non-Christians have marriage problems. They have financial problems. They have ego problems. They have mouth problems. They have health problems. The one thing that separates little Christs from non-Christians is that little Christs are being transformed as a result of being a new creation by the power of the Holy Spirit. So those who follow Jesus Christ can know what God thinks and know what he values and know his passions and his desires and be transformed by those revelations. Paul expertly summarizes this in 1 Corinthians chapter two. He writes, we declare a wisdom a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. He says, we speak a wisdom and this mystery has been solved. For generations, we waited for a Messiah. For generations, we waited to see how God would put right what we corrupted. And now we wait no longer because Jesus has been revealed. And so the mystery is solved, but none of the rulers of this age understood it. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. He says, some of us get it. He says, but some people didn't get it. And we see that they didn't get it because they killed the Lord. Continues and says, however, as it was written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. He says, the earthly mind has no frame of reference for what God has in store. That the earthly mind cannot put into context what God has for his people because we've never seen it, because we've never heard it, because we've never experienced. This isn't something that you can figure out on your own. This isn't something that can be reasoned to or earned. That these type of revelations of transformations come directly from the Spirit, and he is the only way to understand these profound spiritual truths. He says, these are the things God has revealed to us by his Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God, for who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. No one knows your thoughts except for you. No one knows your secrets except for you. No one knows your fears except for you unless you decide to share them honestly. No one knows your mind and what you value and who you are and your flaws better than you. 
because you know your own mind. The Spirit of God is the only entity that knows the mind of God. Therefore, these things can only be revealed by the Spirit of God, which dwells in those who have accepted the gospel as truth. What we have received is not the Spirit of this world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. We can understand his passions. We can understand his desires. We can become more like him because the Spirit of God knows his values, passions, and desires and could communicate those to us. This is what we speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. There are a lot of things that people without the Spirit of God look at about Christians and think are very, very odd. Because God has chosen the foolish to confound the wise. There are things that we value that the world considers valueless. There are things that we do that run counter to the wisdom of this world. And the world without the Spirit can't understand why we do some of the things we do because the Spirit has not revealed to them why we do the things that we do, why we value what we value, why we believe what we believe. So we know that we have been given the Spirit to be transformed, to be more like Christ, and this is a lifelong process. I believe that it will continue into eternity because an infinite God never has to stop revealing things, right? He can reveal things for eternity. We can go deeper into his knowledge and his wisdom and his character and his desires. We can never stop, but even the longest journey begins with a single step, and so that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at a series of three parables that will illuminate to us, that will reveal to us what is one of God's primary values. And that's when we're going to start in Luke chapter 15, where there's some guys gathered around, and now the tax collectors and sinners were gathering all around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. This happens all the time in Scripture. All the time, the religious elite look at Jesus and have no idea what to do with this guy. They look at his wisdom and go, how does this carpenter from Galilee know all this stuff? They look at his miracles and they can't deny that they're happening and they also cannot explain them. There's one exchange where they come up to him and they're like, hey, shouldn't your disciples obey the ceremonial washing of their hands? And Jesus, instead of just saying like, no, he says, it's not what's outside a man that makes him unclean, it's what's inside. And then they all just walk away. Because what do you say to that? Like, we thought, we thought we got you. No, you don't have me. I got you. And so they, they never have any idea what to do with this guy. And now they see a rabbi, supposedly pure, supposedly following God, eating with the outcasts of society, the guys that collected taxes from the Jews for, the, for Romans, that's bad. Sinners, that's bad. Why is this guy eating with these people? Because to eat with one is to be one. 
This was not done in this age. This is not something that they would have considered by any stretch of the imagination, and they have no idea what to do with this behavior, especially since he's quoting Isaiah, kind of claiming to be the Messiah here. Well, the Messiah doesn't eat with sinners because the Messiah is super pure, so this guy can't be the Messiah either. No idea what to do with Jesus Christ. So he's gonna drop a few knowledge bombs on them in the form of three stories. And the first is the parable of the sheep. Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his neighbors and friends together and says, rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Do not sleep on that last line. That last line is vicious. I know that what goes on the t-shirts and the coffee cups and the bumper sticker and what the songs are written about is the shepherd pursuing the sheep, and that's beautiful. The picture, the metaphor of Jesus Christ leaving the 99 and pursuing us, the lost sheep, is beautiful, and it does deserve its due credit, but do not sleep on that last line because that is a shot at all the people listening to this parable. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. I ask you, who does not need to repent? Everyone needs to repent. That is a shot at the people asking why Jesus eats with sinners, saying, oh, you guys, with your fictional moral superiority, I would much rather eat with these people who know they need a savior, who see me for what I am, than you 99, which are so arrogant and self-deluded that you look at these sinners, think you're better than them, and do not need a savior. That was a shot, and I'm sure they got it. That's why they walked around mad all time in the scriptures. You ever notice that about these guys when you read the gospel? They're always mad. You wanna know why they're always mad? Because Jesus is always saying stuff like that to them. He's forever saying your fictional moral superiority is blinding you. And they get mad about that. But he doubles down on this with a parable about the lost coin. He says, or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? I think that is the appropriate response because one of these coins was about a day's wage. If I lose a day's wage in my house... Nobody in my house is sleeping till we find it. We are going to find that, we are going to put it in the bank, and when we find it, we're gonna be pretty happy we found it. If you are one of the people that can lose a day's wage and just write it off and not look for it, see me after service because you have too much money and you're taking me to lunch. He continues, he says, and when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. Rejoice with me, I have been restored and been made whole. In the same way, I tell you, there was rejoicing in the presence of angels of God over one sinner who repents. He says, look, you guys pray about your bank accounts and you look at your wealth. You look at their poverty and say, God has abandoned them. You look at your wealth and you say, God has blessed me because of how good I am. But I promise you, 
that their well-being and their repentance and them coming to know me is celebrated far greater than you finding your day's wage. And if you're worried about your next raise more than you're worried about these sinners coming to me, your heart is far from me and you are deluded and your priorities are out of whack. He says, we celebrate these people that you won't even eat with, but you'll celebrate finding your lost coin and you'll put stock in your wealth and you'll think that I love you more because you have more money. And he says, nothing could be further from the truth. These people are treasured in heaven far more than your fat bank account. And then he leads into one of the most famous parables in scripture. It's the parable of the prodigal son. And it starts like this. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and squandered his wealth in wild living. Like most of us who were young and foolish, this guy got a little money in his pocket, and he lived his best life, baby. There are no rules for me because I am young and invincible. I can do whatever I want, and it doesn't matter because I am the exception to the rule. No consequences will come at me because I am talented enough and wealthy enough to defeat everything that comes my way. Consequences, that's for you normal people. I'm sure you will experience consequence, but me, I can live however I want because I will rise above these consequences. Most of us thought that at one point in time. Most of us with a little gray in our beard don't think like that anymore. We find out that life isn't everything he thought it would be because after he had spent everything, there was severe famine in the whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his field to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but nobody gave him anything. Man, life has a way of snapping us back into reality really quickly. Famine, I didn't see that coming when I spent all my money. Feeding pigs for survival. My guy spent like there was no tomorrow. And when tomorrow came, he found out picking up all those tabs and throwing all those, those parties didn't get him a friend that would help him in need. They got him drinking buddies. And once the money ran out, so did they. And nobody would help him in his time of need. And sometimes we need this. Sometimes we need this snap back to reality, that there are consequences for actions. Continues and says, when he came to his senses, oh man, I can relate to that statement. When he came to his senses. It's a pivotal moment in every life when we come to our senses and realize, man, we didn't have it all figured out. There was still a lot more for us to learn. He said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. 
I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and I have sinned against you and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. You can see transformation in that line. He's not going back to dad saying, hey dad, I demand this of you. I know I messed up, but I'm your son, so give me all my stuff back. He's not going back like that. He's going back with humility. He's going back understanding his position. He's going back and he's going to beg his father, not for a place as an heir to his father's fortune, but he's going back to say, look, just let me be a part of this house again. Let me make the beds, let me sweep the floors. I'll eat, I will enter into this house on whatever terms you see fit. There's a lot of life change that has happened in this young man so far. And so he picks up his stuff, what little he has, he heads back home, and this is what has happened. And I will try to get through this without crying, but I make you no promises. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and I have sinned against you and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Dad was waiting. Dad was looking. Dad didn't know if this day would come, but he was longing for it. He wanted his son back. He didn't know if this was the last time that he would see him the day he left. He didn't know if it was the last time they would speak. He thought maybe this is the last time that he would hug him or kiss him or share a moment with him, but he was hopeful that it wasn't. He was hopeful that his son would return, and on this day, his hope paid off, and he ran to his son, and he hugged him, and he kissed him, And you could feel the father's joy. And the son practices his pre-prepared speech. Father, I've sinned against you. Can I come back as a servant? And this is what the father says. But the father says to the servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost, but now he is found. So they began to celebrate. It's easy to get lost in these stories. It's easy to be moved and empathetic by the shepherd searching for the sheep and by the father. We can feel that, right? Especially those of us that have kids, we can feel that father running to. We can feel his angst. We can feel his relief. We can feel his joy. But guys, we're not after cleverly worded stories this morning. We're after radical life transformation through the power of the Holy Spirit and what we see in the shepherd pursuing the sheep and what we see in the angels celebrating the sinner who returns and what we see in the father running to the son is a profound spiritual truth that you are never too far away from God to come home no matter what your life looks like, no matter what you've done, no matter who you think you are, you can always come home. And he will meet you before you even arrive. And he will run to you because you are what he prizes. You are his greatest value. 
At any time, he says, he could have called legions of angels to wipe out the people that were putting him on the cross. But for the off chance that you and I might want to know him, he stayed up there. And he didn't come down. And it doesn't matter how far you are away. You can always come back to your loving father. But our story isn't done there. So we're not done there either. It continues. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. Excuse me. And when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come home, he replied, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. But this did not move the brother. He was not moved by the returning of his father's son. He did not find this as cause for celebration. He actually gets pretty upset. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. He refuses to be a part of the homecoming. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, not the brother, when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you killed the fatted calf for him. He says, I'm the good son. This should be my party. I am obedient. What has he done? He blew all our money. He went out and drank it up and spent the night with prostitutes. And when he comes home, he gets no discipline. He gets a party and we're just supposed to act like none of this ever happened. We're just supposed to go back to being one big happy family. He doesn't deserve this, but I do because I've been here. He's getting what I deserve and I'm really, really mad about it. And this is the father's response. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours, not my son, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he is found. Remember how this passage started. It started with a bunch of religious elite standing around wondering how Jesus could eat with sinners. Wondering how can you spend time with these terrible people. And if we look through all the parables, we see two sets in each parable. We see the sheep, and we see the self-righteous 99. We see those celebrating about the finding of the day's wage, and we see those celebrating about the sinner returning home. And we see the son humbly coming to his father, begging to be a part of the household, and we see the other son mad at the father's generosity. The first truth that these give is that you are never too far to return home, that your father always desperately desires you. The second truth can be more difficult, and that's why it requires spiritual transformation. The second truth is no one else is too far away to come home either. The second truth is that if you find yourself in the second set, if you find yourself in the self-righteous 99, if you find yourself in those that are celebrating the finding of the coin, or if you can identify with the brother who is angry at God's generosity, then you're on the wrong side of this revelation. 
Because God loves passionately the people that don't vote like you do. And he loves passionately the people that don't believe what you believe. And he loves passionately the people that squandered their wealth and you had to drive by and bail them out. He passionately loves the people you and I can't stand. And we should too. Because that's what it means to be a little Christ. That's what it means to be made in the image to reflect who he is. And it's not about white knuckling it and pretending. Because love is not pretending. Love is the very fabric of our being. And love is the transformation that the Holy Spirit gives us so that we can understand that we can go home and everyone else can too. Church, it's no exaggeration to say that we are known for what we hate far more than we are known for what we love. I want people to ask the same question of me. How can Jason eat with those people? I want them to ask the same question of us. How can we as a church love the people that we find unlovable? Only through the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. Only through the fact that we are a new creation by a result of the gospel and that our privilege is to be transformed to be more Christ-like from the moment we accept the gospel truth to the moment we go to be with him in eternity. It's not about doing. It's about who God has made us to be. So let us be a people that humbly comes back to the Father and let us be a people that encourages other people to do so as well. Heavenly Father, we thank you for being a good God. We thank you for being faithful when we are faithless. And we thank you that we are never too far from you to go home. We ask you to imprint these truths on our hearts and our minds that as we walk out this life that we are lucky enough to be given by you that our purpose is to be Christ-like in this world that could really use you. Let us be a people used by the Holy Spirit to show your light that people can be drawn to that light and they too can be transformed by the Spirit in them. Let us never forget who we are and let us never confuse what we do with who we are. We ask these things by the power of your Spirit and in your Son's holy name.